6. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. This, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful passages in the Bible. It gives me goosebumps every time I read it, trying to picture it, knowing that one day I'm going to see this. Uh, This, coincidentally, was one of my dad's favorite passages, and I remember him teaching on this and referencing this very often. He was a man who was always transfixed on the majesty of God, and there are few passages that reveal the majesty of God quite like this one. And after my dad died, I remember reading this passage and being overcome with emotion, knowing that at that very moment, he was standing in front of God, witnessing this himself with his very own eyes. And it is a tragedy, I think, that we allow the truth and the beauty of the gospel to lose its novelty, the the truth about God's holiness to lose its novelty, the, the, the power that it has to fill us with awe and wonder, because we get so accustomed to the truth of the Bible, and as a result, we, we become so incredibly blasé when we study it. We, we approach God with this casual indifference, because we've heard it all before, we grew up in church, God is awesome and Jesus is great, I get it. And we get so wrapped up with all of our duties and our responsibilities, thinking about work and school and family and social lives and and everything that we have to accomplish. And and we go, yeah, I'm supposed to read the Bible and go to church. Okay, God, let me read a couple chapters. Let me do this church thing. And then that's when we end up going to church and shrugging our shoulders and walking out unaffected. And we give worship a one-star review because we didn't feel anything. And we say things like, well, you know, the sermon was okay, the service was okay, songs were okay. Now maybe you're not guilty of that. Maybe, maybe you're one of those people that always tries, tries to come to church with an attitude of worship. And if you are, I am glad because that's exactly the kind of people that we need in this church. I need to be that way more often. But if you're anything like me, you also can fall into the trap uh, of just shrugging and going through the motions. And in this passage, we see how we ought to approach the Lord. And more than that, I think this passage also shows us 
that the very thing that we should be most afraid of, the holiness of God, is also the greatest blessing we could ever have. That here we have on the other side of the fence, the beast and Mr. Myrtle. And we're terrified of it and we should be. But it's also the greatest gift we could ever receive. So, um, this will be a one point sermon. And I'm going to give it to you right off the bat. Sorry I don't have more than one. Don't judge me. Um, I've been enjoying my vacation. Um, But this will be my one point, and and we'll break it down as we go. Point number one, God's holiness is both our greatest threat and our greatest blessing. So, at the beginning of the passage, he begins by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. King Uzziah was a significant part of this story, though he is only mentioned in this chapter with this one reference. The kings of the kingdoms of Israel and the kingdom of Judah totaled 42 in all. There were 42 kings, and some of them reigned only a few months. Uzziah, on the other hand, reigned for 52 years. So in these two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, in Israel there were 19 kings, 19 kings of Israel and not one of them, not a single one was described as being a good king. Every single one of them was described as one who did evil in the sight of God. And then in Judah, of the kings there, 12 were described as evil and only 8 were described as good. So that means that between these two kingdoms, out of 42 kings, we have eight good kings. And if you include David and Solomon when the kingdoms were united, we have 10. And that's over the course of 390 years. Over the course of 390 years, there are only 10 good kings. Uzziah was one of those kings that was described as good. His reign began at the age of 16, and for most of his life, he glorified God in his reign. Now, in the latter years, he didn't finish strong, okay? Pride uh, at all that he had accomplished began to take over, and he finished very, very poorly. But he was one of the best kings in the history of Judah. And so at the end of Uzziah's life, the kingdom of Judah was reeling. They they were destabilized. Remember, for these people, it was the only good king they'd ever had in their entire life. So it was a time of national grief. And it is in that moment that Isaiah enters into the throne room of God. R.C. Sproul says this, the king was dead But when Isaiah entered the temple, he saw another king, the ultimate king, the one who sat forever on the throne of Judah. He saw the Lord. In this time of fear, in this time of instability, in this time of everyone around him being afraid and wondering what the future would be, he enters in and he sees the one who is truly, actually in charge. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, in this, we have to realize that when it says he saw the Lord, he did not see the Lord face to face, okay? He could not look upon the face of God. That would have killed him. 
That, that would have destroyed him completely. In another scene, we, we have Moses speaking to the presence of God. And Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me your face. And, and God has to say to Moses, listen, buddy, I'll make you a deal. I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock and then I'm going to walk past you and I'm going to let you see the train of my robe. Anything more than that is going to knock you dead. And so Moses hides in the cleft of this rock and the glory of the Lord passes by him and he sees the end of God's robe. And he is so transformed by that, it says that when he came down the mountain, he's glowing. It's like a bright light is shining like the sun from his face. That's just the robe. The same is true here in Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of which filled the temple. Like Moses, God allowed some of his glory to be revealed. Not the fullness of it. He shows Isaiah the shape of his frame on the throne and the train of his robe. Far from seeing the fullness of God, Isaiah sees his torso. And then he also sees this very strange angel or or set of angels. It says, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He sees these incredibly weird angels, right? And these these angels also show up in the book of Daniel, and they also show up in the book of Revelation, and they're covered with eyes and covered with wings, and that is weird, right? That's strange. It's something that we look at and we're like, what is going on with this? Well, he says that with two of their wings, they cover their faces, and with two, they cover their feet, and with two, they fly. Why? Well, they cover their faces because they, even they, cannot look upon the holy face of God without being overwhelmed. They must even shield themselves. They cover their feet because they cannot bear to stand on holy ground. Again, think of Moses when he approached the burning bush. God told him, remove your sandals for you are standing on holy ground just because his presence was there. And so here in the fullness of God's presence, these angels cover their feet and they fly for the same purpose because God forbid they set their feet on that holy ground. So we have these incredible angelic beings and even they are completely overwhelmed by the majesty of God. And then we have what they say. This is known in theological terms as the Trisagion. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This, my friends, is not a mere description. We cannot miss this. This is everything this statement this this call to worship contains the essence of how we ought to approach god any time that you see repetition in scripture it is placing a particular emphasis on something that is a rhetorical device that is used by the scriptural authors 
For example, when you, when you look at the, the, the teachings of Jesus, he would say, Truly, truly, I say to you, or in the King James, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. That repetition by saying truly, truly, it was driving home a point that what I'm about to say is something that you can stake your life on. It is trustworthy and right and good. Truly, truly, I say to you, when there is repetition, you pay attention because what's about to be said is important. And this is the only time in the Bible that an attribute of God is repeated three times. There is only one description of God that is repeated in triplicate. Holy, holy, holy. Again, to quote R.C. Sproul, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. The word holy is the Hebrew word kadosh. And that word kadosh means to be set apart. It means to be the opposite of common, normal. It is to be entirely unique and transcendent. It is to be completely other. It is to be high and lifted up, entirely pure, without blemish or flaw. It is to be completely undiluted. He is entirely separate. He is entirely other. He is entirely pure. He is entirely holy, holy, holy. And then, in addition, in addition, it says that the whole earth is filled with his glory. And that word glory is the Hebrew word kabod. That word kabod means heaviness. It means weight. It is a powerfulness of presence that can be tangibly felt. To, to, to have a picture of what this word means, think of a weighted blanket. I don't know if you've ever had a weighted blanket. Some people are very comforted by it. To sleep in a bed with a weighted blanket means to feel the heaviness of that object enveloping you. It is grounding you, it is securing you, it is swaddling you, and your whole bed is filled with its heaviness. The weight of that blanket that grounds you and comforts you and keeps you warm. And so in a much greater way here, when when we're aware of the glory of God and the whole earth being filled with it, it is to sense the heaviness, the wonderful weight of God enveloping the whole world. There is tremendous power, unspeakable, unimaginable power and weight and otherness in the presence of God. And so the seraphim call out in worship 
They're, they're booming voices, echoing the supremacy and the might of the Trisagion. And at the sound of their voices, Isaiah describes the tremors set off by their exaltation. He says the foundations and the thresholds begin to shake. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Anybody ever here experienced an earthquake? Ever been in, in, in a place where, where you can feel those tremors? I have. Uh, it was a minor earthquake, but it counts, okay? An earthquake nonetheless. Um, at the time, I was living in Virginia, and I was the uh, youth and college pastor at a church, and I was in the car with the head pastor of the church, and we were driving to the hospital to visit a sick church member. And so, we pulled into the parking garage to find a place to park. Yes, that's right, I was in a parking garage when the earthquake happened. When you're writing a list of the last places you want to be when an earthquake strikes, parking garage would be near the top. And so, we're driving around in this parking garage, slowly looking for a a parking space, and all of a sudden, I feel his car begin to shake back and forth. It was like someone was standing on the bumper and jumping up and down on the car and making the whole thing shake. And, and so I look over at him and I'm like, dude, what's, what's wrong with your car, man? And his eyes are wide and he's like, I, I don't know. This has never happened before. And that's when I looked out the window and I pointed and I said, look, all the cars are shaking, every one of them. And it dawned on us, and we look at each other, and we're like, oh my God, we're in an earthquake. And there's this moment of sheer terror, and just like that, it was over. That was it. It was over. We later learned that it was an earthquake that registered 5.8 on the Richter scale and caused $300 million worth of damage on the East Coast. What we felt was only a slight tremor on the outskirts. But even that was terrifying, okay? It was so scary because in my mind, I'm immediately thinking of movies where I've seen earthquakes happen and everything collapses. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm in a parking garage and everything's going to fall and my wife is going to wait weeks for my body to be found. It was terrifying. And here... Isaiah, in addition to everything that we've described, is now in the midst of this earthquake. Again, think about Moses on on Mount Sinai. That passage tells us that God appears in this storm with thunder and lightning and booming trumpets. And it says that there was an earthquake that shook the entire foundation of the mountain. Isaiah is already overwhelmed at this point by the holy frame of God. He is blown away by the seraphim and their declaration. And he now feels in the power of the presence of God, the entire throne room beginning to shake. The thresholds and the very foundations upon which he stands. These inanimate objects cannot even stand still in the holiness of God. Objects that are not even alive are convulsing in distress. It says the entire house was filled with smoke. 
smoke from the fire of the powerful presence of God. And so now every single one of Isaiah's senses are assaulted. Assaulted with holiness. He can see, he can taste, he can touch, he can hear, he can smell nothing but glory. Weight. Holiness. Now I mentioned the comforts of a weighted blanket. But you may know about weighted blankets that they are sold with differing weights depending on how big of a person you are. So, when you purchase a weighted blanket, you have to purchase the right weight. Because the right weight can be comforting. But if you purchase too heavy of a blanket, you can be smothered under its pressure. It can put you at great risk and great discomfort. If you are under too heavy of a blanket, you are overwhelmed. You can't breathe. You have to get out. That is what Isaiah experiences. This this, this is far too much weight. This is is far too much glory. This is far too much holiness. And, and, And so then look at his response. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, Woe. Woe is me. Woe is a word that we don't use that often. We find it in a few places of Scripture, one of which is when Christ pronounces woe on the Pharisees. It is a pronouncement of doom. It is a spoken curse. It is calling down the fiery judgment of God to destroy completely. And then he says, I am lost. A better translation of this would be, I am undone, I am ruined. To again borrow the words of R.C. Sproul, it means to come apart at the seams. It means to become unraveled. It is the experience of disintegration. To be integrated means to have all the pieces put together like a unified whole. So think about a puzzle. This past weekend, uh, when my father-in-law and his girlfriend were in town, we, we had this huge puzzle on the table that uh, most of us were trying to put together, and it's not done yet. Uh, how many pieces was it? Do you, do you remember? A thousand pieces. A thousand-piece Pokemon puzzle. And we haven't quite finished it yet. We think there's some pieces missing, but we're trying to put all the pieces together, right? And, and so we're trying to take all, every little thing and put it in its right place. We're trying to integrate the picture. To disintegrate would be to take that puzzle and rip it to pieces and throw all the pieces as far from each other as we possibly can. Integrating means to take them from a jumbled mess and put them into a picture. But to disintegrate means to tear that puzzle apart and scatter what was once whole. And Isaiah says, I am undone. I'm pulled apart at the seams. My entire self is screaming under the weight of this blanket. Get me out before I am crushed. And why? Why is this his response? Because the blinding light of holiness 
exposes the filthy slime of his sin. He sees himself clearer than he ever has. It's kind of like walking into a hotel room. That when you flip on the light, it looks normal. But when you flip on the correct kind of light, a black light, you see everything that you would not see otherwise, and you do not want to be in there. He is entirely exposed. The truth of his spiritual grime is laid bare. He is unmasked completely with nothing left but shame at who he is and what he is. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Lips here are used as symbols for his heart. Like Jesus said, out of the heart the mouth speaks. And so Isaiah is saying that he is a man whose heart is drenched in sin and that his people are people who are steeped in filth. Of all the people of Judah, ironically, Isaiah would be considered the most righteous because he was the chosen mouthpiece of God. He was the prophet speaking on God's behalf. He was the one who stood in the gap between the Almighty and the nation. His entire life was dedicated to God's word and leading the people to follow it. He was the preacher, the one who's supposed to have it all together. And yet, in one powerful moment, standing in front of the holy presence of God, every fiber of his being screams in dread as he feels the fire of glory exposing his unrighteousness. The holiness of God is the greatest threat that he can imagine. It is the beast on the other side of the fence Fangs bared, eyes glaring. It is Mr. Myrtle with his imposing presence standing on the porch, terrifying. And once Isaiah sees himself for who he truly is, he screams in fear and he wants to do nothing but hide. But this... This is where this passage becomes so beautiful for us. Because this is where he's supposed to be destroyed. This is where the beast is supposed to consume him. This is where he's supposed to meet his end. This is where he's supposed to find out that he is hated, that he is despised, that he's cursed, and he's damned. But instead of that happening, says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. 
Your sin is atoned for. I mentioned that I have been reading this book by Jackie Hill Perry about the holiness of God. And her thesis statement for this book is brilliant. She said that she realized that if God is holy, that means that he cannot sin. And if God cannot sin, that means that he cannot sin against me. And if he cannot sin against me, that makes him the most trustworthy person to give my life to. It is his holiness that threatens with its perfection, but also that makes him minister to me in a way that I could never deserve. In this moment, God responds with an act of limitless mercy. He bestows upon Isaiah unmerited favor. As Isaiah is trembling in fear, awaiting the completion of his disintegration, one of the seraphim brings a burning coal from the altar of God. And it is something so white hot that it says that the angel has to grab it with tongs from the altar. It is so white hot that even an angel cannot touch it. Even an angel who continually stands in the presence of God must grab it with tongs. And he flies over to Isaiah. And he touches his lips. Again, this is symbolic of his heart. And under the searing heat of God's devouring fire. Isaiah's sin is cleansed. And the angel says, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Rather, rather than being disintegrated, Isaiah is made whole. God removes his guilt and his shame. He removes the damning grime of his unrighteousness. And Isaiah's spirit now soars with euphoric purity. In that moment, that which was his greatest threat became his greatest blessing. God's holiness guaranteed that he too could be made holy. God's holiness made it impossible for there to be any other alternative. If, if Isaiah would only repent, he would be holy. He would be pure. He would be loved. He would be made whole and complete and he would be given a purpose. Instead of being sent away, he is sent Filled with the inexpressible joy of what has happened, he can confidently answer the booming voice of God in the next verse. God speaks and says, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah boldly says, Here I am. Send me. This is a man who is transformed. 
This is a man who is set free. This is a man who is redeemed. A man who has been made holy. Not because of anything that he has done. Not because of anything that he deserves. Not because of anything that he's earned. Not because of any type of performance. Not because of any way that he offers anything to God or anyone else. But simply because in his holy righteousness and grace, the holiness of God touched his heart. And he too was made holy. And so having been made holy, having been made whole, instead of disintegrating, he is now integrated into a fullness that he has never experienced before. And in that, when God says, who will I send? Who will be my messenger? Isaiah can say, here I am, send me. The verse that we are memorizing this month, Proverbs 15, 30 says, light in a messenger's eyes brings joy to the heart and good news gives health to the bones. We have been called to be messengers of the hope and the righteousness and the grace and first and foremost, the holiness of God. We are called into his presence and offered a burning hot coal to burn away every bit of our unclean filth of sin. If we would only offer ourselves to him, if we would only repent, he will make us whole. And instead of sending us away, he will send us with his message. When Isaiah realized the fullness of his sin, He was filled with every fear that you could possibly imagine. And I don't know if that's something that you have ever experienced. Coming face to face with the depth of your own sin in the holy presence of God. And the enemy in that moment tries to come to you and say, this is it. Now that you are seen, you are undone. You have no hope. But the Lord says, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And then you can say, Here I am. Send me. In the Sandlot, the boys at the end of the movie are all loved on by Hercules, the beast. And that big, scary, menacing dog licks their faces, slobbers all over them lovingly, and wears a baseball jersey as he sits at the sandlot watching the boys play. The holiness of God, though terrifying and filled with more power than we could ever imagine, makes us whole, and then comes with us everywhere we go to represent him and loves us and slobbers down the side of our faces with love. If you have never been made whole by the holiness of God, 
Let his spirit now beckon you. Call you to surrender. Call you to see the fullness of your need. To see the fullness of your desperation. To bring you to that point of feeling like you are undone. And then welcome you in by touching your lips with a hot coal from the altar. If God is holy, he cannot sin. And if he cannot sin, he cannot sin against you. And if he cannot sin against you, he is the most trustworthy person to give your entire life to. Let's pray. Lord, truly, you are holy, holy, holy. And the whole earth is filled with your glory. God, I thank you that you welcome us into the throne room, into your presence, into the power of it all. You welcome us into the storm. And in the middle of that storm, as we fear becoming undone, Lord, you offer us tremendous, unspeakable grace. You offer us yourself. You offer us redemption. You offer us wholeness. Not by covering up the things that we've done. Not by pretending that they're not there. By seeing it completely and atoning for it. Thank you that you are holy. Thank you that you are holy, holy, holy. Invite us into your holiness. Transform us with your holiness. And then, God, may that holiness send us out. Lord, here we are. God, if there's anyone here or anyone listening to the podcast or anyone watching online right now that has never given themselves to you, that has never walked into your throne room to be disintegrated and then put back together, God, I pray that each of those people in that situation would be welcomed in by your spirit and that they would give themselves to you completely, that they would surrender to your atonement, that you welcome them into the storm and then send them out with new life and new purpose. God, as we sing our closing song, I pray that you would help us to focus our hearts on you. That truly we would set aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, that we would worship you. Bring us back, Lord, to the heart of worship where it's all about you. Forgive us for making it about ourselves. Focus our hearts on you now, Jesus. And it is in your holy, holy, holy name that we pray. Amen. If you would stand, we will close in worship.